Well, you can keep your Bibles open this evening at that portion that we read from John chapter 11. As we think this evening of a great sorrow. A great sorrow. John chapter 11 is a very sorrowful chapter. At least the first portion of it which we've just read. It's a very solemn passage of scripture. And yet it describes something that is common to every family, every community, everywhere in the world. That of times of grief and loss and death entering into our experience. And in God's providence we come to this latest I am saying of Jesus at a time when many of us have been directly impacted by or have been thinking about the loss that bereavement brings Some of you have lost loved ones within the last few weeks, others within the last couple of years. Some of us have attended funerals even in this past week. Emotionally, uh, you have been where Mary and Martha and their friends and even our Lord Jesus find themselves in this passage. You've experienced that grief and sense of loss that they experienced But it's in that very situation that the Lord Jesus declares another of his great I am sayings. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus uses this description of himself, I am. I am the bread of life, he said in chapter 6. I am the light of the world, chapter 8. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10. And here in chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus, in the midst of a wake or a funeral, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's special language, as we've considered each time, uh, used by Jesus to emphasize to his listeners that he is the divine heaven-sent son of God, that he is, in fact, the eternal God who has taken on human flesh. And that's really the one of the main things that those words I am speak to, the, the eternality of God and of Christ. You remember the voice that spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and God speaks to Moses and sends him to the, the people of Israel in Egypt and Moses says, who should I say has sent me? And God says, tell the people I am has sent me to you. A name speaking of God's eternal uh, nature. And Jesus has been using this language periodically in John's gospel to describe himself, describing the kind of saviour that he is. All of Jesus' I am sayings emphasise that he gives us something that we desperately need. He gives us bread in a world of hunger. He gives us light in a world of darkness. He shepherds us in a world of confusion and need. And he also gives us life in a world of death. And in this latest I am statement, Jesus reveals not only that he gives us things, but that he himself is what we need. He is the life that we need. He is the remedy that we need to that which causes us our greatest hurt and our greatest pain. That which people dread the most or should dread the most in this world. Death itself. In John 11, we find the great I am, the eternal son of God, walking into this little village of Bethany, into the midst of this mourning and sorrow. 
and providing a comfort that no one else can when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He comes in, in the midst of a great sorrow. I want to think, first of all, this evening about the great cause of our sorrow. The great cause of our sorrow. Sorrow hits us at different times and for different reasons. Uh, sometimes we're sorrowful over some personal failure or we feel like a failure. Uh, we wanted to pass an exam and we didn't. We wanted to get a job and we didn't. We wanted to marry someone and it didn't work out. Sometimes we're sorrowful over our own sin. And indeed it's right and appropriate for us to have sorrow over sin. And as, as we go on in our Christian life, uh, we become more sensitive to our sin. Or we should do. And we long more and more for the day when we're just completely free of sin. We won't have the guilt and shame that it brings any longer. Sometimes the darkness of our world makes people sorrowful. Depression and, and loneliness can grip people because of the sorrowful experiences of life. Other people just have a, a nagging sadness, a sorrow as they look just at the turmoil of the world. And they can have a sense of futility as, as they look at the world. Sometimes we're sorrowful and we can't even explain why. Maybe just the exhaustion of life has caught up with us. And there's just a nagging sorrow. But as we look at this scene in Bethany, we're confronted with the greatest cause of sorrow. Death. If you look at how the, the chapter begins, John 11 verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. There's a closeness between these people and Jesus already established. They're mentioned, of course, Mary and Martha in the Gospel of Luke as well. And John here portrays them as close friends of Jesus. You notice how the sisters describe Lazarus to Jesus when they send word, verse 3. Uh, they simply say to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That was all they had to say. Uh, that was the, a fitting description, obviously, for the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. The word for love there in the original, it means a brotherly love, a familial love. Lazarus and Jesus were like brothers. They loved each other. But death separates them. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples, in their rather dim way, say, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up again. And so Jesus has to spell it out more plainly. Verse 14, he says, Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died. Death is the great enemy, the great cause of sorrow. And contrary to how some people like to talk today, death is not natural. Yes, we know that our bodies go through what you might call a natural process of, of, of losing strength and, and losing power. We become more feeble to the point of physical death. But death, in, in another sense, is not natural. It doesn't belong. Death and decay, were never, uh, they're not supposed to be in our world. They're only in our world because of human beings falling into sin in Adam and Eve. It doesn't belong. We are... Not originally intended to 
to get weaker and to get older and to die. We were originally meant to enjoy life forever. And people don't like to think about death at all if, if they can help it. We've taken all kinds of precautions and created all kinds of method, methods whereby we can put off thinking about death or, or we can uh, preserve life. We have our seatbelts, we have our surgery, we have diets, we have health care. And of course, we're free to make use of those things and to be thankful for them. But they do not protect us from death forever. The sorrow that death brings is inevitable for all of us. And we should resist this kind of superficial attitude that many people have to death today. Even even for Christians, even when we know that a loved one has died in the Lord, it's right to, to mark the grief of that and the sorrow of that. And yes, to give thanks for their lives, but not to pretend that death is not an ugly intruder. One of Martin Luther's most popular sermons, which was printed and published several times during his own lifetime, was a sermon entitled, Preparing to Die. Luther, of course, was living in a far less medically advanced era than ours. People were reminded of death, perhaps far more frequently. People didn't live as long. Infant mortality rates were high. Disease was common. Luther wanted people to be prepared for death. And even in a time when we can perhaps delay thinking about it or, or take measures to prevent it, we, we also need to be prepared for it. And John 11 comes at a, a key turning point in John's gospel. Uh, John's gospel, of course, is very different in many ways from the others. Of course, it's the same subject matter, but it is a very different gospel. And, and, and here at this juncture, Jesus' public ministry is coming to an end. He goes to Bethany in chapter 11. It's just two miles from Jerusalem. And in John's accounting, Jesus stays there until he goes to the cross. John has strategically placed this story here, friends, to remind us that Jesus still needs to deal with death. It's his greatest enemy. And it is our greatest enemy. And the greatest cause of our sorrows. And many of you listening this evening, either here or at home, don't don't need me to tell you that death splits up families. And death can leave scars on the loved ones left behind. And death can shock us and numb us and impact us as nothing else can. And death is waiting. For each and every one of us. Unless Christ returns first. And whilst it's not wise. It is understandable that people would try to avoid thinking about it. Particularly if they don't have faith in Christ. But death is not just a a future prospect for us. It is in fact a present reality. In in the souls of those who are not saved by grace and, and who belonged who do not belong to Christ. Physically we're all born alive, obviously, but spiritually human beings are born dead in sin. The Bible gives us this picture over and over again. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 1, you were speaking to believers, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
Spiritually speaking, friends, each and every one of us are spiritual stillborns. There is no life in our souls. We are dead in sin. We are mastered by sin. We are uh, in the grip of death and sin in our souls. And it takes a supernatural intervention by God. uh, God, the Holy Spirit, taking the truth of God's word and applying it to our lives and birthing new life in us to cause us, spiritually speaking, to be raised from death. It takes that to happen for us to be united to Christ. And if you're a Christian here this evening, that's what's happened in your life. What once was dead has already come alive. Your, your spirit, your soul was dead in sin. Now you're a new creation. You've been born again. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus Christ has already done in your heart what he can also do for your body. He has caused resurrection to take place in your heart. He has birthed new life in your heart. And that tells us, friends, that Jesus can take away our great sorrow. Lazarus had died physically, as we all will, a consequence of the sin of our first father, Adam. But along comes Jesus and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is equipped to deal with our greatest cause of sorrow, death itself. And that brings us to consider, secondly, the Lord's sovereignty in our sorrow. The Lord's sovereignty in our sorrow. We've thought about the great cause of our sorrow, death itself. Now the Lord's sovereignty in our sorrow. The drumbeat of John's gospel, the point that he wants to highlight perhaps more than any other, is that the Son's purpose on earth is to obey and glorify the Father. To make men and women see and to praise God for his goodness and his grace. That was always Jesus' goal in everything that he did. Look at how Jesus responds to the message of Martha and Mary in verse 4. About Lazarus' illness. He says in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is not taken aback by the news of Lazarus' illness. Of course he loves Lazarus deeply. uh, As we see reading the passage. He's not making light of what's happened to his friend. But even in the midst of death for Lazarus, Jesus is concerned that the Father be glorified. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus, Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you notice the wording there? It's surprising. Because Jesus loved Lazarus, He did not go to him when he was seriously ill. Because the Messiah who can heal people loves his sick friend, he's not going to his sick sick friend. That maybe sounds very strange. It's a bit like reading, Now husband X loved his wife, so when he realized that it was her birthday, he did not go out and buy her a gift. doesn't really make sense. It sounds paradoxical. Is that not the natural and obvious thing to do? 
And we think, well, would it not have been obvious for Jesus to go to Lazarus as soon as he heard about this illness to heal him? And yet John says it was love, not just love for Lazarus, but for Martha and Mary as well, that kept Jesus from going. In fact, by the time Jesus arrives, verse 17, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So, so Jesus wouldn't have arrived in time anyway. But look what he says to his disciples in verses 14 and 15. For your sake, in other words, for your good, for the maturing of your faith, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. So that you may believe. Did the disciples not already have faith in Jesus? I believe they did. But Jesus wants to improve their faith, if you like. He wants to strengthen their faith, build upon it. He wants them to see more of the glory of God, even in the midst of this very solemn situation. What would strengthen the faith of the disciples and the faith of Martha and Mary more would it be seeing Jesus heal another sick person or would it be seeing Jesus raise a man to life a dead man back to life more glory would come to the father if Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead but for that to happen Martha and Mary and even Jesus and the disciples will have to pass through a time of sorrow So there are these two purposes of Jesus here in this chapter, friends. We'll think more about this later in the weekend, God willing. But two great purposes here. The glory of God and the strengthening of the faith of his followers. And Jesus' purposes haven't changed today. These are his purposes, not just in our sorrows, but in every situation we face, good or bad. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers immediately or he doesn't remove our sorrow immediately because he wants to strengthen our faith. John Calvin says, when we have prayed to him, Christ often delays his assistance, possibly to exercise our patience and accustom us to obedience. In other words, friends, in our sorrows, God is sovereign. In our confusion, he is in control. And that's one of the things that struck me as as I read and studied this chapter. Everyone in this chapter is confused. Everyone except Jesus. In verse 12, the disciples are confused when Jesus says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. Disciples, like many of us, easily confused a lot of the time. Thomas is confused in verse 16. He thinks that if Jesus goes to Bethany, his enemies are going to kill him immediately. And he sort of comes out with this statement. Commentators are divided over exactly what motivates Thomas to say this. But he says, let us go with him, that we will die along with him. Thomas is sort of confused as to what all of this means for Jesus. Martha, quite naturally, is brokenhearted and Confused as well when she finally meets Jesus. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And Martha, as is quite natural for many of us in times of grief, she's, she's allowing her mind to race through the ifs and the buts. And Mary does the same later on. If only. In times of sorrow, we can become easily confused. In such times, friends, we, we need to try and remember that in our sorrow, God is sovereign. Perhaps we're sorrowful as we prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table this weekend. As I mentioned already, I'm mindful that many of us are grieving the loss of loved ones or those we looked up to, uh, those that were a blessing in our lives. Maybe we're sorrowful over sin that has been lurking and rearing its head in us over recent weeks. Maybe we're sorrowful and we don't know why. When we are sorrowful, he is still sovereign. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. It was because Jesus loved his followers, loved Martha and Mary, loved Lazarus that he stayed away. And also because he loved his father. There was purpose to it. And when we are sorrowful friends, there is purpose in it. Don't doubt the sovereign and good purposes of God. Wait patiently for him. Come to his table this weekend nonetheless. Be refreshed and reminded of the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. The great cause of our sorrow, the Lord's sovereignty in our sorrow. And finally this evening, the Lord's remedy for our sorrow. The Lord's remedy for our sorrow. Look at verse 22. Mary says, but even now I know, sorry, uh, is it Martha that says, um, uh, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Verse 22. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now we need to notice there the strength of faith that Martha does have. She, she's obviously a woman who has paid attention to the scriptures being read in her synagogue. She believes in the resurrection as many devout Jews did in Jesus' day. But she speaks of the, the resurrection, the, the last day, the, the day of judgment. Um, Isaiah 26 verse 19, Daniel 7 speak about the Messiah judging the living and the dead. Psalm 16, of course, which we, read, uh, uh, which we read earlier. You will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. Psalm speaking of life after death. So Martha does believe in the resurrection at the last day. But what she doesn't seem to realize is that the man, Jesus, standing in front of her is not only going to bring that resurrection at the last day, He himself is that resurrection. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Going to meditate more on those words on the Lord's day, God willing. But Jesus is teaching Martha here that the resurrection is not just sort of a a far off hope. It's not just theoretical, if you like. He's saying there is hope today. There is promise of life today. 
the power of resurrection is standing in front of you. I am the resurrection. I am the life. It's not just that we get things from Jesus, friends. Rather, if you're a believer, we are in Jesus and he is in us. Jesus says in verse 25, whoever believes in me, the word for in there in the original is really into. Whoever believes enters into new life, resurrection, hope in Jesus Christ. We are in him and he is in us. If you're a Christian this evening, you've been born again. Your resurrection life has already begun. We'll think more about it on the Lord's day. But as Christians, we already enjoy some of the blessings of of resurrection life. We know that our sins are forgiven. We know that we are children of God, that we are welcomed into God's presence through the person and work of Christ. We have a love for God's word. We love to gather with God's people. We are to be witnesses of the gospel. A resurrection life has already begun, spiritually speaking. And in times of sorrow, that resurrection life means we know that we have a saviour who is sovereign. And we know that death does not win in the end. Martha is heartbroken. Martha is confused. But Jesus stands before her offering hope and love. I am the resurrection and the life. He's the only one who can bring victory over death. And we've seen that as well as we've thought about these various I am sayings that all of them speak of Jesus exclusively being the bread, the the light, the shepherd. He is exclusively these things. He is the resurrection and the life. People sometimes talk about wanting to live their best life or to live in a particular place or earn a particular salary. That would be the life, people say. And they don't consider that death can take away even those things that they would consider the best life. All of those things are leveled, are gone in the face of death. But the one who invites us to the table is the life. The life. Do you know him? Do you, like Lazarus, love him? Is your trust in him? Jesus is asked to step in and save a sick and dying man. He does eventually, but he does it in such a way as to bring glory to his father. That was the whole reason Christ came into the world. But the supreme moment of Jesus glorifying God came when he went to the cross. The cross was an even more sorrowful scene than the scene at Lazarus' tomb. At the cross there was death at its ugliest, death in all its gore and misery. The great intruder even allowed to claim the life of the Son of God, momentarily at least. But just as God was sovereign in the sorrow of Martha and Mary, he was sovereign in the sorrow of the cross, bringing it it about for the greatest possible good, the saving of many lives, the greatest possible glory going back to him. 
God is still sovereign in our sorrows today, friends. If he was sovereign in the mess and pain of the cross, he's sovereign in your sorrows and mine today. And through Christ, he is eventually going to rid us of sorrow completely. And so trust in his sovereignty over your sorrow. Come to his table this weekend and be refreshed and comforted as we remember again what he has done for us. And as we meditate upon these great words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Amen.